0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. Grass-fed beef raised on California's Central Coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com.
2: This week on Meetin and 3, we're talking about the United States' biggest crop. It's corn.
0: They will always tell you that corn is like their family. Corn is their family. You treat
3: corn like you would treat your family.
1: These subsidy programs are supposed to be for really dealing with unexpected things that happen to farmers, although in practice a lot of times farmers are actually paid farm subsidies for things that we can control and do expect.
0: There's this constant warfare going on between the oil industry and the grain industry.
1: Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Schulken, the foundation's executive director. Our show takes you inside the foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Ottolenghi collaborators, Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wigley. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Sammy and Tara about Palestinian food, and their cookbook, Palestine. And we get another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia's connection to France is pretty well understood. What often gets overlooked is how much Julia's worldview was formed before she even tackled cooking. Julia came of age at the onset of World War II, and during the war, she lived in Southeast Asia, what today is Sri Lanka, then Paris, Marseille, followed by Bonn in Germany, and Oslo, Norway, much of it during the height of the Cold War. For a sheltered young woman, From a conservative Pasadena family, this journey firmly changed her outlook. Experiencing a multitude of cultures very different from her own, she notably learned that a lot of common ground can be found over a plate of food. This global education, which expanded during her marriage to Paul Child, fundamentally shaped her focus on the importance of eating, cooking, and ultimately sharing good food. Another pair of internationalists, like Julia and Paul, are Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wigley. Sammy is a chef, and Tara is a food writer and recipe developer. They are both members of the Ottolenghi food family. If you've not had the chance to sample Ottolenghi food in London, you may know the cookbooks, including The Eponymous, Ottolenghi, and Jerusalem, both of which Sammy co-authored. Sammy is Yotam Otolenghi's creative partner and Otolenghi the Brand's executive head chef. Yotam and Sammy are a rare Israeli Palestinian duo. It's a partnership sporting as much global influence as Julia had in America, only with a lot more hummus in the mix. Sammy was born and raised in Jerusalem. He worked his way up in Israeli restaurants before moving to London in the late 90s. He partnered with Noam Bar and Yotam Ottolenghi in 2002 to open Ottolenghi in Notting Hill. Today they own and operate two delis and four restaurants, including Nopi and Rovi in central London. Tara joined the Ottolenghi family in 2011 after working in publishing and training at Ireland's Ballymaloo Cooking School. First collaborating with Yotam as a recipe developer, she added writing contributing to the cookbooks Plenty More, Nopi, Sweet, and the latest editions of Ottolenghi the Cookbook and Simple. While a Londoner, her visits to Israel and Palestine go back more than 20 years, including running the Bethlehem Marathon in 2018. They join us today to share Palestinian food stories and talk about their recent Palestina cookbook. Welcome to the podcast, Sammy and Tara. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you Hi. for having us.
4: Thank you. So I wanted to ask at the start, because it's sort of constantly on everyone's mind. I was curious what the impact, because I was an regular customer, various places, but certainly haven't been to one in a really long time. What's the impact been on on the Ottolenghi food family?
2: Uh, The impact has been enormous, as it has with all the restaurants in London, which have been closed for a long time. But it's just... Amazing to see how Ottolenghi, as well as all the other restaurants in London, have really pivoted and really just doing a great deal to still get amazing food into people's houses. So, for example, from from my base, which is the Test Kitchen, um, there's just been amazing production of of, of what we call Ottolenghi on the go. Um, so it's kind of food in 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 pouches. You can get your shakshuka mix or your your sort of meatballs or some beautiful soups um, and so that's sort of one thing we're doing, and then also um uh, sort of takeouts from restaurants, and you can sort of get a proper, kind of really classy takeout. Um but 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 um and then waiting for them to open in two weeks' time. Um but then also there's been some real upsides in the last year. Um the there's a whole new series of books coming out in September, um, or or the first book in what's gonna be a series which reflects the changing way in which we've all been cooking during the, the pandemic. Um, and the new one's called Shelf Love, and it, it reflects the way we've all been a lot more reliant on the food we've got in our pantry and being a lot more kind of adaptive with ingredients. So, so as well as being massively hard hit, um, the, 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 the company as well as the industry is proving to be really robust and the appetite for good food remains, thank goodness.
4: That is great to hear. Sammy, did you want to add anything to that?
3: No, it's just kind of, uh, from the way I look at it, it's uh, that the food industry kind of is uh, slowly changing and and readapting to the situation and from all the grim of, you know, the whole COVID, uh, there's also sprouts of hope and you know, re readjustment means, you know, you just got, kind of keep going and uh, not just making it kind of stopping you, but, you know, you just move forward.
4: Yeah. Do you kind of feel like there might be, even though it's still really rough, this kind of idea that out of this, like a phoenix, a kind of new way of eating and dining may develop and evolve as people kind of reevaluate was how we did things before really the best possible way? Definitely.
3: And uh, there's quite a lot of elements uh, in the way people eat now. And how the restaurants kind of readapt to um, the situation and the demand of uh, you know the customers, which is will stay for the future. I think um, you know a lot more emphasise on um, a, a kind of half cooked or pre cooked or not cooked at all. People will kind of always have um, a kind of. Um, uh, almost like a, a need for it, because not many people. I mean, it's also to do with the fact that a lot, of, a lot more people would want to stay at home and work from home, and um, you know, to be able to feed their families, they need to also not just to rely on restaurants and cooking, but also on the kind of takeaway. But I, uh, you know, kind of different takeaways, yeah.
2: And also for for, for cook for cookbooks, a lot, of, you know. People, for the first time, have had to cook two or three meals every day so so actually the need to kind of pull out the cookbooks and really just kind of get cranking them out and just get a bit clever about kind of rolling sort of rolling meals into the next one so you 've got something left over rather than sort of sort of cooking every meal from scratch and yeah. you know Palestine was published in the u k sort of two days after the first national lockdown. so on one hand, it was sort of awful timing, and then on the other hand, everyone was kind of stuck at home. Needing to cook, and then actually sort of, and then actually it sort of turned out to be a sort of almost a kind of a blessing in terms of, of actually people spending time with the book. So yeah,
4: yeah. And so how did how did you guys end up deciding to collaborate on 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 this book cookbook, which is about pal- Palestinian cuisine? Um, I mean, for
3: me, I mean, it was a project that you know was on an agenda for a long time, and when I started doing Jerusalem with Yotam. Uh, it kind of triggered the thing even more. Uh, but the market wasn't ready for a, for, a, for Palestinian cookbooks then. Um, and before Palestine came out, uh, there were a few really good Palestinian cookbooks that kind of paved the way to Palestine. Uh, me and Tara uh, kind of... Um, I wanted to go back and, you know, there's kind of, uh, when you leave a place for such a long time, and go back and you have all these emotions. And I needed another pair of uh, uh, eyes to kind of see things from a different angle. And this is, and Tara was the perfect person to do that. Um, she is not so familiar with the place that the food, she uh, Tara visited a couple of times uh, beforehand but it was all kind of a new experience for her, and we worked really well together. Mm.
2: And that was obviously something at the beginning that I was nervous about because I was an outsider, but then I realised that actually everything that I wanted to know and that I felt too intimidated to ask would be probably what the reader was feeling too. So I almost kind of, I was almost kind of writing the book that I wanted to read because I think cookbooks are such a good way for people who want to find out more about a a sort of cuisine or a region or a history or a people or a place. Um, And it can be so kind of intimidating. And actually cookbooks are a really good way of kind of holding your hand and kind of welcoming everyone to the table with stories to share. Um,
4: No, that's true. And food, as I was sort of alluding to in the the introduction, and I think you guys will talk about more, is food also has that ability to give you um permission to talk about or a, a venue to talk about more difficult subjects as well
3: i mean yeah i mean the, this uh, part of the world it's uh, but whatever you say or do it kind of get blended in with politics and you have to be careful what what words to use and how to phrase things and so you don't kind of upset anybody uh Food is a good way to for people to wanting to to know more. It, it doesn't kind of solve the problem, but the fact that you know we all kind of sit, we can sit on the same table and eat the same food and enjoy it, and hopefully have a conversation or two. Uh, that's that's a good start for me. And food does connect people. It's just you know this the, the whole conflict there um, makes it much harder but when you kind of strip it down and go down to the human kind of nature of you know the, the both sides and especially on the palestinian and, uh, they they enjoy food and they celebrate it and they celebrate you know the the whole season and the ingredients and but also sharing it with others hmm. and it's also
2: in, in palestine where we have as many Stories, as we, we don't have as many stories as we have recipes, but we, we've given over a lot of space to stories because, as Sammy says, as well as the food and the recipes, it's also coming to the table for the stories and sharing those as much. And these two things are constantly weaved throughout the book.
4: Now, one thing I noticed that you, you didn't delve into the controversy of that you did cover in Jerusalem, unless I missed it, was whether the Palestinians invented hummus. And uh, so was that something you tackled, or you decided deliberately not to bring up again?
3: We, I mean, in Jerusalem, we um, we tackled it slightly, but uh, we didn't feel the need because, you know, Palestinian food is beyond, you know, hummus and falafel. It's uh, it's a lot of people don't even know what Palestinian uh, food. Um, so. We, you know, we wanted to, to, to tell real stories of real people with, you know, good and bad, um, just to um, kind of give people a, a little window into what's happening there uh, nowadays. Um, but yeah, we didn't, we didn't go into who's what and, you know, who's this dish belonged to.
2: And yeah yeah and as sammy says like our stories are very much kind of show don't tell we're not kind of it wasn't about kind of who owns what it was just it was as sammy says like showing these windows onto what's going on in palestine today because i think you know can often these books cookbooks can often be a bit kind of tinged in sepia with sort of stories of the past and kind of recipes handed down from previous generations and People forget that you've got young people who are living there today who've got their Nike trainers and their mobile phones and their entrepreneurs and their enterprising. And it's all happening in kind of full color now. So we just wanted to kind of show life today in, in the hope that people are going to go and find out more and eat more and ask questions and, and kind of explore.
4: So you were guided in some ways by the stories, like you told the stories that you were told or what people um said to you that they wanted to share? Uh,
3: no, they're actually, um, um, they're not like telling a story. This is how they, they live their kind of, this is how they uh, um, expose us to, you know, their life. It's not a story that they, they sat and told us. It's more how the reality and how they kind of cope with it and um, how they live the day by day.
2: And also Sammy and I were lucky enough to, these weren't kind of people we met for two hours, kind of one afternoon, we were lucky enough to go on kind of two or three trips together there and actually really spend time and hang out with people who then became our friends. So so, so yeah, it, it felt like we were able to kind of uh, piece together what we saw over a number of kind of months and years and then tell, it's almost sort of like a, a life in the day rather than just, as Sammy says, a story they told us.
3: Yeah, and also we, we, we chose uh, profiles of people that their story actually touched us and we felt like uh, other people will kind of um um what's the word uh uh sit yeah with it and you know we will want to kind of hear these stories
4: and and from so most of that was collected or all of it was collected pre-pandemic and I was just curious if you've been able to stay in touch with, with some of those people or some of your, well, and Sammy, you have a extended family there. Like, how how have things been in Palestine, given that it's already a, a tremendously challenging place to live on a daily basis, yeah. but especially for farmers and cooks and restaurants and all of that? What what have you heard or observed? I mean,
3: it was quite, it was quite bad. And, uh, you know, it's a small country, and they had a very high percentage of death and uh, kind of cases of COVID and they have to shut down everything twice and the whole coordination with, you know, medical supplies and hospitals between Israel and, you know, the, the West Bank and Palestinian territories. And, uh, but, you know, they, I mean, the, I'm just talking about my, my family. Now they dealt with that. Like we dealt with that where, you know, they just stayed at home and made, you know, the big breads and made, Uh, you know, meals for, uh, I mean, my sister was doing like in a day uh, meals for the whole week (laughs) and just kind of dividing, trying to please everybody and uh, to not be standing every day and cooking a lot because, you know, she has five kids and, you know, and her husband and herself. So it's a lot of people to feed. Uh, but it, it, it was quite bad. I mean, Israel is the same story. It's kind of, uh, they just dealt with it the way, you know, each, each country kind of have their own kind of rules and regulation and how to do it and what to do. Um, so, yeah, but now, I mean, most people are vaccinated, so it's a good thing.
4: So, so you have heard? Because I heard there was some news about that Israel wasn't sharing nicely in terms of their progress with the vaccine. It's sounding like from what you're saying that that turned a corner in Palestine.
3: Yeah, I mean, they they um, got um, money donated from different places, and uh, Gaza, for example, had it really really badly because it's it's like a it's a closed place, so you can there's no in or out. Uh, so. Jordan kind of interfered in the whole thing, and kind of yeah, it it it's uh, it's. I mean, I'm not trying to wrap it up. It's just kind of it's a it's a reality, and you know, unless you are there, you just kind of hear things. And I I just hear things from my family, so it's one side of the story, I think.
4: Hmm. Well, it's it's helpful. To, I mean, I think it's not something a lot of people have heard directly about because there's so many other stories. And but like you said, have, it's quite in
3: terms of restaurants and cafes, everything was shut for so long. Almost
4: but with year. the vaccination, has a lot of has a lot been able to reopen.
3: Uh, they only opened uh, about a month ago, so it was uh, closed since, uh, until until then. I see.
4: Well, let's shift gears, because I wanted to get in before we uh, talk more specifically about the book, to kind of help people understand, you know, you were even saying that up until a few years ago, it would have been hard to write this book about Palestinian food. And so I was hoping you would both kind of take a stab at helping us understand what distinguishes Palestinian food. Because I think when you look at the cookbook, a lot of the dishes have a sort of General Middle Eastern food familiarity, but what would you say are the sort of distinguishing characteristics or approaches?
3: Uh, the spicing, I mean, the way they spice their food, first of all, and they use quite a lot of uh, chili and garlic and uh, uh, lemon, but also they forage quite a lot. And food uh, for Palestinians were attached to, to the land and, you know, to farming and seasonality. Uh, which is something that you know, kind of they they, this is kind of they celebrate that every every time there's something in season, everybody you see it everywhere and everybody's buying it and making the best out of it, but also preserving it and pickling it or even preparing it and put it in freezers uh, nowadays to keep it going for the rest of the year. Um, it's not dissimilar from uh, from Lebanese and Syrian, but. You know, there are a lot of uh, typical dishes in Palestine that are are not uh, part of the um, uh, kind of Levitan um, repertoire, for example, musakhan, which is the roasted uh, chicken on a flatbread or taboon bread with lots of sumac caramel and and they're a lot of kind of uh, new season olive oil. Uh, Cauliflower fritters, which is also part of, you know, the whole repertoire. Uh, Labanille, it's a kind of, uh, it's almost like a rice risotto cooked in yogurt. And we topped it with cauliflower, with uh, um, fried garlic and coriander seeds. But they can also use other vegetables too. Sometimes they do it meat, sometimes they do it vegetarian. So, yeah, there's quite a lot of uh, dishes that are typical to, to Palestinian kitchen that don't really kind of you don't see them anywhere anywhere else in the world.
2: And then even some even within Palestine there's there's sort of regional differences, aren't there? Or a sort of area. So inland there's a lot more kind of bread and meat and use of kind of fermented yogurt. Um and then down in Gaza there's a lot there's this sort of trilogy of ingredients, which is the green chili uh dill and garlic which is in in a lot of things and that goes into the the shatter that sami was saying and then up north and of on the coast in akka a lot more fish and fresh so so even within in palestine which is quite small there's there's kind of a big a big difference
0: yeah
4: that's that that's really helpful and so just to stir things a bit do you think it's is the dirty secret of what Israeli food is is really underpinned by what the Palestinians brought and were eating because obviously there's a certain amount of recent invention to what is Israel and certainly what is Israeli food is not really what the Jewish diaspora was eating outside of Israel.
3: No, but you know, also if you think a lot of the the Israeli Jews, Israelis came from Arab countries nearby, and you know their their diet is not dissimilar. Uh, but uh, when they, I mean, I grew up in the 70s there. I mean, as a, as a kid, I remember what they used to call Mizrahi, which is um, uh, Jews that come from Arab countries. Uh, food it was kind of very simple, but also very not dissimilar to um, the food I, I grew up on eating. Um, but all the tahini and all the kind of uh, typical Palestinian dishes, is all kind of just the last probably uh, 15 years, 20 years, that they started kind of integrating that in the uh, Israeli kitchen. Obviously from going to Palestinian restaurants and being invited to Palestinian homes, uh, they kind of adapted some of the ingredients, sometimes the whole dish to, to their kind of uh, cooking
4: well when uh, people uh, people see a good thing they, they <laughs> latch onto it Tara, did you want to well, answer it's, a it's also yeah.
2: why we spend so much time with with people in the book because you know for us uh you know Palestinian food is sort of often defined by who is cooking it and it's it's the people and the stories and the history history but it was it's interesting for me as as an outsider and I don't have a sort of uh, my identity is not is not kind of linked to any foods, I don't really care whether the sort of the jam or the cream goes on top of a scone in kind of whatever order. But it wasn't until I went to Palestine and see the kind of see the, um, the just the import of the olive tree, for example, and how it, how it impacts not, not the past but today, people's lives, and the cycle of the year, and, and the picking of the olives, and then the harvesting, and then the whole cycle, and then the dish that Sammy talked about, the chicken musakan that is used to showcase the oil, uh, that I kind of realized what actually, what what it means when people talk about the link between sort of food and identity and, and kind of actually sort of individual produce and how it's not a kind of vague concept, it's a completely tangible, tangible thing was really extraordinary to witness.
4: Mm, and I, I think that's very representative of, of so many cultures around the Mediterranean, probably, maybe because they have the benefit of the climate that really, mm. you know, makes great great ingredients grow up from the ground. We'll be right back with more from Ottolenghi's Sami Tamimi and Tar Wigley on the fresh delights of Palestinian food. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's Central Coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch Beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch Beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
4: Welcome back. We're talking to Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wigley about their recent cookbook, Palestine a primer on Palestinian food. So we're now right in the midst of the Passover Easter Ramadan season. And so I wanted to ask both of you what you think of as kind of recipes that people might really turn to that speak to um, this time of year from the book.
3: I mean, here in the UK, we eat eat lamb or leg of lamb or lamb shoulder. So lamb is everything here in the UK. And they normally do it in a very kind of traditional way, which is, you know, with root vegetables and potatoes and some Yorkshire pudding, right, Tara? hmm
2: absolutely. I'm going to do the uh, the pulled lamb shawarma um, this weekend, which is just absolutely beautiful, which is in the book.
3: Yeah, and you can talk about a lot of dishes that, you know, can be uh, suitable for the three sides at the moment. I mean, there's, there's so many, like uh, we have um kind of a bolognese with okra or the pasta bake. Um, all, all the lamb dishes are really delicious. I mean the, the one that Tara mentioned the uh, pulled lamb um it's just it feeds a lot of people it's really easy to make you just have to whack it into the oven and leave it for four hours. Um, so yeah there's there's quite a lot. I mean we have also a lot of um um, um vegetarian main dishes lots of salads. so yeah people can choose
2: and also the lovely fish dishes as well sammy the beautiful salmon skewers and cod different as well yeah. um and then yeah Falassi, we've got these we've got these kind of big showcase recipes which are very traditional palestinian but then there's also quite a lot of of um of much kind of quicker recipes and because we we it's very much for the kind of uh, the kind of busy home cook rather than it always just being for the kind of the big Easter sort of big celebratory meals.
3: Yeah, I think if you invite a lot of people around it will be nice to uh, kind of um, wow them with a, a big dish like uh, the, the broad beans and butternut squash makluba which is upside down or inverted uh, rice cake and it's absolutely a show stopper and it can feed up to 10 people.
2: But we've got to we've got to have food that everyone can eat outside it's going to be picnic food because we're still not allowed to actually host inside so this is food you've got to be able to eat on your doorstep
4: <laughs> well, well it seems like a lot of this food does work at sort of room temperature i feel like that's also true of you know the sort of general otalingi m- m- menu it, it's not contingent on it coming out piping hot completely
2: necessarily. and I, I just think that's for me that's just such a massive part of the appeal of of kind of all things fallacy and all things otalingi because I, for one, am a real kind of make-ahead cook and I would sooner make something hours in advance of my sort of friends arriving so that it's just just there. And then I think it also ties in with Palestinian hospitality because it means you can just get this spread of food on a table and then everyone can just help themselves and come and go rather than it being the kind of, you know, the sort of old school kind of French way of sort of... Arriving and having to eat it kind of at that minute, which is I find quite stressful. So I think I think that's a really important point about it all being lovely at room temperature and and just it makes for a much more relaxed, informal vibe and way of eating.
3: And it's also, it's almost like a lifestyle where you know you. I, I don't like uh, piping hot food. I, I always make it and leave it and just go back to it. I think um, I i enjoy it because i grew up like you know, on kind of this kind of food where you just you don't have it piped in hot
2: we have um, a joke in my house that every time i wake up in the morning i put the kettle on and then i roast an aubergine every morning and and uh so that i can sort of have it later on in the day at some point sort of at room temperature and my kids this will be their madeleine moment when they smell this aubergine in years to come
4: <laughs> they're gonna <laughs> have pavlovian responses exactly to the smell for the rest of their lives. at six in the morning <laughs> because
2: uh, do, you have,
3: do you have anxieties maybe to, that one day you <laughs> forgot or, or you don't forget?
2: <laughs> I just don't forget, Sammy. I mean, what can I say? I just don't forget. <laughs> well, let's hope
4: the evergreen is not loaded with the, the UK shipment of, of aubergine. <laughs> <laughs> that would really you better do a couple extra. So
0: uh-huh.
4: you you both talked in the first half of the show about the stories and the people you met. So I didn't want to um, not go into that and in more detail. And as you guys both both said, the book is quite balanced. It has more recipes and stories, but for a cookbook, it has quite a lot of stories, and particularly that delve into the complex reality of living in Palestine, not necessarily the politics per se, but that it is politically and logistically, which are intertwined, complicated to live there, and mm-hmm. challenging. So I, I wanted to, to offer you both a chance to kind of share one of the stories that really inspired you so uh the floor is yours i don't know who wants to go first <laughs> right.
2: um i mean i could choose a, a lot of people but the person i i'm sort of uh think of most is this amazing lady was our buddy called vivian sansor who um who could have chosen a much easier life that she was living in in america where she was studying and uh, she was sitting in a lecture one day looking at a, a sort of picture of Zatar, which was being explained to her by her tutor. And she suddenly had this moment that she just wanted to kind of be back in the fields and kind of feeling the soil and actually working with the, the farmers of, of, of Palestine. And, and kind of all these years later, she's a, she's a young, young lady, but she's just doing a lot to, um, to find and harvest heirloom seeds and to... Bring these back and kind of take this sort of metaphor of seed as growth and identity and actually not only kind of installing that to all the kids that she meets and talks to but actually it's a real practical thing as well and there's um just this sort of big cooperative of of farmers who are now who are now um sort of growing and 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 doing this kind of monoculture and uh there were so many amazing women that we met in palestine but uh just to meet someone who is really young um was really inspiring to me who kind of who who hadn't chosen chosen the kind of an easier path and she's just a real warrior
4: and yeah. sammy was was there someone else that you 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 continue continue to sort of occupy your your memory
3: yeah it's, a, it's another kind of uh, warrior which islam uh she's is... She's also she's not very she's in her mid thirties. Uh, she um, she lives in a um, refugee camp, Ida, in Bethlehem, and she's got a, a disabled kid. And she wanted to help him because they didn't have they don't don't have any schools for disabled kids, and so she started uh, cooking for people and then cooking with people, and she did so well that she managed uh, with. More ladies in the camp to open a school for disabled kids, and to be able to have a lot of uh, people coming in for uh, cookery lessons or meals in Ramadan, and all the money you know they they invested in you know um, in the in you know in the community or in the camp, and it's it's a very she's a very kind of humble um big smile on, but you know, she wanted to do something that um uh, nobody wanted kind of to, to help at the beginning with because there's no a kind of way to get out of the cab and and ask or and yeah so she, she decided to do it and it's a it's a beautiful thing to see. Um and she's surrounded by you know the whole community there
4: wow
2: yeah it was very cute when we first went and and uh and she was making shish burak dumplings and sammy kind of suggested that he could help and he definitely had to prove himself to her as this kind of man in the kitchen that he was that he kind of roll and fold but he quickly won her over but it was a it was a kind of interesting dynamic and then and then her husband was giving sammy a hard time about the fact that sammy didn't have children of his own and it was funny Me and Islam kind of caught each other's eyes we saw these two men having this conversation that women have been having for kind of generations about whether you could have it all and it was just it was a really kind of special special dynamic.
4: Yeah, I was struck by uh, that. You cover that quite clearly in the book. And it's interesting you both gave examples of of women. And one of the things that I wanted to ask about was the, the inference in the book is it's very unusual for men to cook in Palestinian culture. And I think you were saying that even extends to professionally, which certainly exists, particularly in other Asian cultures. But Sammy, is 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 that st- still the case? That really in Palestine, all cooking is primarily done by women
3: at home and some kind of food uh, establishment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are a lot of young uh, male that want to kind of go into the, the food industry. But uh, the food, you know, at the end of the day, they go back home and their moms cooking. So the food is very much uh, kind of um, uh, controlled by you know because it's a, it's a it's a trade. It's not a trade. It's a, something that you know you inherit from your mother and grandma, and it it get passed by you know generation of women. Uh, so men don't kind of. Um, have a share in it unless you have a wedding or something like this where, you know, some sometimes men and women don't kind of um, mix together. So they, they kind of come and help. But yeah, most of the cooking and the food. And this is why the, we also portrayed quite a lot of women because they're entrepreneurs. They are the ones that kind of uh, want to do a bit of change. They want to they don't just sit home and, you know, cry about what happened. They all just want to kind of... Uh, look forward and do something positive
2: but just just in case anyone thinks that there's no men featuring in this book yeah. um uh we do we profile to <clears throat> two restaurateurs and one one young guy and one older guy yeah. which is really interesting and also the thing that sammy's not saying is that that uh you know the, the person who's teaching the world to cook palestinian food is a man and sammy was someone who was shooed out of the kitchen when he was a little kid by his aunts and his sisters because because boys weren't meant in the kitchen. And yet the person who is teaching everyone to love and cook Palestinian food is Sami. And that's, that's remarkable, I think.
4: And so within Palestine, is that a reflection of just this sort of Culture or is it also a little bit related to the economic reality that there just weren't a copious amount of restaurants that would be run in a traditional style with a male chef? Or and or and mostly if you ate out it was not a luxurious meal but a, a shawarma or something like that or a falafel on the go?
3: Or? It's totally a culture thing and I mean I see it in many other cultures like Iranian
4: where you know women
3: I mean, the restaurant that they open, uh, they are, they not, um, people go out, they don't want to have their mom's food when they go to the restaurant. So they want to have something different. And this is where, you know, what do I like? I mean, I, I prefer my mom's cooking, my sister cooking, but actually I'm going to go out to a restaurant and try a new thing. Or I don't want to have my mom's cooking when I go out. So there's two things. And, uh women always cooked in the middle east and less i mean the men did but you know uh, it, it's uh, it's a woman kind of uh, thing
4: i see tara did you want to add anything to that from your sort of observations or if whether that culturally is you felt like kind of evolving or changing
2: um, I, one thing I was just just uh, an image that came to mind was the number of of kind of traditional dishes which which require a lot of kind of stuffing and folding and these and um, these time consuming recipes and that would involve these lots of these big kind of groups of women so it's a very social thing with all the kind of chat and time time spent kind of gossiping and catching up which just I, I was just kind of smiling smiling at that image um, uh, so yeah and it's I mean the 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 restaurant scene is 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 if you once you're kind of outside busy places like kaifa um it's still got a lot of room for development like I think you know in bethlehem that if you want to get good food you need to go to the the place that's just selling one thing you know it's the shawarma like you said or the flaffle um but it's there's, there's still there's still a lot more room for development of things like restaurants, but that needs more tourists who are going to come and actually spend time in Bethlehem because at the moment people just do a day trip from Jerusalem and are not actually spending enough time in Bethlehem to kind of sort of create the demand that's needed for restaurants. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg, but, but, uh, so yeah, we hope that people actually, uh, kind of go to Bethlehem and kind of ask for more.
4: I see. All right. After the break, we're going to get another double Julia moment from Sammy and Tara. Get in touch, send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at JuliaChildFoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at JuliaChildJCF. Let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. The first ever fully authorized Julia Child note card set published in collaboration with Princeton Architectural Press is on sale now. Proceeds jointly benefit the foundation and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Available at papress.com, bookshop.org, and other leading retailers. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your
4: convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Sammy, do you have a Julia moment for us?
3: I have two probably. No, actually one. Um, The fact that she was this tall lady, she lived in France, she didn't speak the language, she she was really bad at cooking and somehow with determination and uh, woman power or or human power, uh, she managed to to become what she is, Julia Child, which is quite amazing because I was just reading like, until the age of 30, she was a bad cook. And she used to live on frozen ready meals and stuff like that. that's to do a career in such a kind of um, way, it's pretty special, I think. Um, no, I, I... it's also kind of uh, tied with, with you know my experience with you know moving from back from Jerusalem to, to London, not knowing the language so well, and being able to kind of uh, do something with, 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 with myself without kind of uh, getting off the hook.
4: Yeah, no, I think it, it speaks to the power of food and if you get really interested to be able to transform one's life. Yeah. Tara, do you have a Julia moment for us? <laughs>
2: um, um, I, I think a lot of people probably reference the film Julia and Julia, but it's one of my kind of top five films and I must watch it once a year. And um, I just love it. And also Julia Child really reminds me of, of Doreen Allen, who is uh, the lady who kind of awoke my passion and gave me the kind of belief that I could do anything when I was at Bally Malou Cookery School. And dorina like Julia, is just this kind of larger than life person who who just thinks all it takes is courage, the courage <laughs> of your convictions. And uh, and dorina made me believe that I could just email Yotam and Sammy out the blue and just say, hello, I can't really cook, but I'm just going to come and arrive on your doorstep. And, and it was just that that power of just these kind of these forces of nature who just 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 make you think like what's the point the alternative is to be bored in paris as it were and um and now i've got kids who are who kind of we're very much into the kind of pancake stage of life every saturday morning is pancake so even though it was potatoes in her pan, we every Saturday do the kind of it takes the courage of your convictions to flip the pancake. And then actually on Friday night, I finally watched, sat down with my daughter to watch Julia and Julia, and she couldn't believe that the thing I'd been quoting all these years was from from this lady. so it was oh, that just, it
4: wasn't your own.: It wasn't my own. Wit,
2: <laughs> my own little alliterative wits. So no, I was stealing from the best. so uh, yeah, it was, it was so good, so happy making.
4: Well, that's so good. Yes, I can see Dorina saying the same as Julia. Of course, dearie, just call just them. What do you completely?
2: Here's my little my little book. I'm sure I've got his number. Yes,
4: <laughs> exactly. What have you got to use? Yeah, Sarah Moulton has similar stories about Julia encouraging her to, to do things. So, do you make American style pancakes, or what are you making?
2: I well, my husband makes those. I'm not allowed to go there. He says that's the last dish that he's got ownership of. So, I'm oh. doing I'm doing my the thin, thindle crepes.
4: Oh, okay. Which is easier yeah. to flip. Yes.
2: But in fact, yeah. I can't even do that now. The kids, the kids are all over it. They're, uh, yes. Got, no, no got, I'm a got, bit they, territorial.
4: A very... I don't allow a lot of flipping. I kind of... <laughs> they ask a lot, and then I just yeah. like, well, you can do this one.
2: And uh-huh. we, def- we definitely institute Julia's uh, three-second rule. In fact, it's about a 30-second rule. If no one sees, it can just come off the floor, whatever it is.
4: Yes. If you're alone in the kitchen, <laughs> who is going to know? Uh... <laughs> yes. Yeah. She was from that prior generation that was not a stickler for um, for germs in the new <laughs> germphobic wor- world we're living in. Well, thank you both for joining me today. It was a pleasure.
3: Thank you very much for having us.
4: Our pleasure. <laughs> and thanks, everyone, for listening. The book is Palestine, a cookbook by Sammy Tamimi and Tar Wigley. It's out now from 10 Speed Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. For more about the Adalenghi family of restaurants, and or to cross your fingers, book a table for a future visit to London. It's at otolenghi.co.uk and it's at sammy underscore tamimi, it's sammy with one M, and at tara.wiggly on the Instagram contraption. For more from the foundation and about new podcast episodes, make sure you're following at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child, JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. As promised, the lineup for 2021 Santa Barbara Culinary Experience is live. Check it out on sbce.events and register your interest now. Follow at sbculinaryexperience on Instagram for all the latest updates. Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. It's used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. <laughs> This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio Network.